Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bonar. You're listening to Gold, performed by the band The Lone Bellow and co-written by lead singer and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Zach Williams. This town's too small for second chances From kings and queens and true romantic Main Street on Originally delving into songwriting as a way to cope with a family medical crisis, Zach Williams eventually moved to New York City to seriously pursue a career as a writer and performer. There, he formed the group The Lone Bellow, which released its self-titled debut album in early 2013. People Magazine named it among the top 10 albums of the year, and it earned the attention of Aaron Desner of the band The National, who produced The Lone Bellow's second album, Then Came the Morning. The group subsequently earned an Americana Music Award nomination for Duo or Group of the Year and relocated to Nashville soon after. They went on to record a third album in Nashville with producer Dave Cobb before making yet another record with Aaron Desner. The band's most recent release, Love Songs for Losers, is their first self-produced album. The lead single, Honey, became their first top ten single on Billboard's Adult Alternative Airplay chart. Part 1 Scott, sometimes I have to pinch myself that mm-hmm. we get to have our episode sponsored by Burl Snap Studios, which was started by the great <laughs> Burl Ives. I, 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 can't, I, I, I think it's Pearl, Pearl Snap Studios. Curl Snap Studios, started by the great Shirley Temple. I cannot believe that we get to have... Uh, per, Pearl Snap Studios not, has nothing to do with, with, with Shirley Temple. Not, not curly hair. It's Pearl, Pearl Snap, like, uh, like on one of those Western shirts. It's not Girl Snap. No, no, Pearl, like with a P, Pearl, Pearl Snaps. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I have to, I have to send some emails really quick. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> well, by any name, Scott, we're talking about a quality enterprise. Yes. Pearl Snap, that's how you, Pearl Snap Studios. Pearl, Pearl Snap Studios, yeah. Okay, no wonder nobody's been writing me back. But I guess, so that's P-E-A-R-L snapstudios.com. And tell the people what happens when you go to pearlsnapstudios.com. When you go to PearlSnapStudios.com, you will see that they can make a demo for you, whether you are a country songwriter, an R&B songwriter, a Christian songwriter, an idiot idiot songwriter, (laughs) (laughs) no no matter what kind of songwriter you are, PearlSnap Studios can take your song, can take that uh, great song that you've written, but you don't know quite how to get it into that professional uh, sounding shape that you want it to, and they can make it sound like even more more amazing than you ever dreamed of. Whether you're just trying to do a a, a demo that you can play for your friends and family, whether you've written a love song for your significant other that you want to give to them as a gift, whether you've got something that you want to actually pitch to commercial artists in in whatever genre, whether you are ready to actually make an album of your own. It doesn't matter if you live in Nashville where Pearl Snap Studios is. It doesn't matter if you're sending something in via the magic of the interwebs. They will help you get it into something that is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, seriously, especially if you're a country songwriter. Like, what's better than going to Merle Snap Studios and, like, you know, the great Merle Haggard is there. <sighs> yeah, it's it's Pearl Snap. It's P- Pearl with a P. Oh. And, and that's where our friend Dustin uh, <laughs> is going to help us get... No, sorry. It's it's Justin. Now, oh, okay. see, you yeah, got yeah, me yeah, all yeah, mixed so I'm up. Sorry. You got I'm me sorry. all mixed up. I'm sorry. <sighs> no, hit up Justin. PearlSnapStudios.com, and they are going to do for your song what you would not believe to make it absolutely amazing. 
So, Scott, there is a documentary on Netflix that came out a couple weeks ago. I've been talking to you about it. I know you haven't seen it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna call you out in front of the public. You know, like you know. But I know, I know you haven't. I know watched you haven't it. seen it. I'm not gonna call you out yeah. for that. But I, you haven't. <laughs> uh, it's the Wham documentary uh-huh. about the the pop group featuring the future at the time legend George Michael. Right. Um, pop group or pop sensation? Uh, well, sensational pop group. There you go. How about we say that? Um, and. So th- it's, it's actually a really cool documentary, um, mostly put together with uh, interview f- uh, segments from the two guys, George and Andrew. But and, and you, by the way, I will say, have been a, a George Michael apologist uh, <laughs> for as long as I've known you. George Michael is being inducted into the Rock and Roll yes. Hall of Fame this year. So I think vindication uh, for you. But you were waving the flag for the artistry of George Michael when we yes. were teenagers at a time when he was not particularly respected uh he was kind of he he was parodied on saturday night live he was kind of treated as a joke uh but you always were like dude george michael is a talented dude thank you for pointing this out i was listening without prejudice (laughs) in the 90s um and it is great to see now this sort of modicum of of support and acceptance happening in the world around but um so uh my my buddy josh who is maybe a bigger uh, well definitely a bigger george michael fan even than i am Sent me some things today, some early demos of the song Careless Whisper. Right. Um, which And part of that is discussed in the documentary. Careless Whisper is one of the greatest soft rock songs <laughs> to ever make its way onto the airwaves. I, I mean, mean I, I can picture many a dental cleaning as a exactly. as a kid and listening to Careless Whisper. Right. And, and so, but separating it from the context, I mean, <laughs> we're talking about an incredibly memorable song. It's, right. It's been the stuff of legends and covers and memes and everything. Written by a teen, George Michael was a teenager when he wrote it. That's crazy. Um, yeah, it just it came up with with the hooks, with the concept, all of it, and even produced it. Right. Which again, if if you're thinking about this, back in the days, it, this was not when you had like Pro Tools in your bedroom. Like right. you had to be able to function in a studio. You had to be able to communicate with musicians. You had to be able to put a production together. Right. right? Very impressive. So what's interesting about these demos I was sent? So the first one is George's first like super rudimentary rough demo that he put together okay so play me that one A lot of the melodies are, are intact. Right. The little, uh, you know, guitar line, the syncopated thing is there. Right. A, a, a lot of the bones of the song are there. No right? saxophone yet. Not yet. Yeah. Um, there's another demo. I actually don't know if I have access to that one, but there was a second demo he made that had the saxophone line on it. So that was all George's too. Because that, that's... So, so he wrote the sax part. Yes. Okay, iconic. Wow. wow. Um, so uh, once he got his record deal, they were like, we're, we're going to bring in a real deal producer to make this thing happen. Right. With, with some clout and credits behind him. So enter Jerry Wexler. Wow. Okay. Um, Atlantic records. Yeah. Legend. 
legend, right? Aretha Franklin. And somebody that, that George and Andrew at Wham would have really respected because they were both kind of raised on soul music right. and, and sort of that was the basis of their sound. So bringing in Jerry Wexler must have been just an absolute dream for these guys. Yeah. Until they heard the recording, <laughs> which I will play for you now. All right. So we're obviously listening to something that has uh, that's taken some strides ahead from this early demo that I just played you, right? Right. But we know Careless Whisper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, the the sax is there. It's not it's not unrecognizable by any means, but right. it's it's different. Yeah, it just it feels a little lackluster, a little like, sluggish. Yeah, something maybe is kind of missing here. So George decided I'd like to take a crack at producing this, right? <laughs> Which I'm, I'm sure and he's what 19 years old yeah, at this so, point, something like that. Telling Jerry Wexler that was that was nice. Yeah, but good I'd try. like to take a crack yeah. at this. Yeah, and, and the label I'm sure was like, oh my, you know. And then you got to <laughs> spend money on George's version or whatever. Well, here is the version that we've all come to know and love. certainly got more energy george right. sounds more engaged uh, it sounds uh, i mean the 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 difference is in some subtle nuances uh, the hi-hat pattern is the thing that i immediately said i didn't realize how important this was right how it kind of glues the song together all these rhythmic elements happening around it right and this you know i'm, I'm tempted to beatbox it but <laughs> you heard it like it's that it's that hi-hat going yeah. across the top that connects little, everything together. A little hand drum in there. Yeah, a little congas. And the song's about dancing. Yeah. And so the song actually makes you move a little bit in that dentist chair or right. wherever you happen to be. <laughs> um, and I think it's it, those little touches 
that really make the difference. And we might have been talking, I don't know, we might have been talking about an album track versus an iconic, you know, standard, which I think that song has become. Yeah. And it just told me, number one, how important production is. Oh, how yeah. incredibly important production is to, to having a song communicate and find what it's supposed to be. But then I'm just like, dude, the guts on this kid <laughs> to say, no, you know, and, and we always talk about music as a youth movement. Yeah. And, and art tends to favor the young. Um, but man, in those days, in writing and production, I'm not sure that it did. Yeah. You yeah, know, I think, I mean, it, there's a reason they went to Jerry Wexler, who was, I'm sure, a middle-aged man at that point. Right. I mean, for, for Michael Jackson, you come on, and it's not that Quincy Jones was old, but you had a guy that had worked with Sinatra. <laughs> right, yeah, right. I think he'd worked with Count Basie. Yeah. You know, and it's like, this is the guy that's going to produce uh, Thriller. This, right, you know, right. and um, there was this sort of important thing of having a steady hand on the helm, someone who'd been there before. Right. Um, now you think about nowadays, you got Billie Eilish and her brother in a bedroom yeah. making records and yeah. taking the world by storm. It's crazy. Um, I don't know that you want a producer that's worked with Count Basie at this point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, interesting because Jerry Wexler was also making uh, good records in, right. in the eighties, you know, but it does speak to, to something about like, just because somebody's a legendary producer doesn't mean they're the right producer for every artist. Right. And, you know, I think, uh, yeah, like the, the younger people are going to have more of a handle on the pulse of what's kind of happening within their own culture. And, I would say that the internet is probably like democratized youth culture mm. to a large degree where it's like, you know, they just can, can broadcast like whatever they want. Right. But there were gatekeepers, you know, for a teenage George Michael, you know, he couldn't go like put careless whisper on TikTok and then right. go to the label and go, look, it's a viral sensation. Right. Like there were those kind of gatekeepers. If you don't have the right producer or the right A&R man or whatever, you know, then you're, you're not going to, you know, get any attention. So yeah, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, and I think it's also a reminder of like how a really good song can become an okay song with bad production right. and a great song with great production. Yeah. And, and, and I assume an okay song can at least become a hit. With right. Great production. It can't become a great song. You know, uh, to that point about sort of, you know, youth and, and what they're able to accomplish. I, I do think that, you know, Michael Jackson uh, with Quincy, M Michael was a, a really pivotal part of how those records were put together. Right. And one of the things that, that he would always say, Michael was going to like Studio 54 around right. the time and making it off the wall. Yeah. And he's like, this is what I'm hearing in the clubs. Hmm. And, you know, Quincy liked to get out at night every now and then, too. <laughs> right. um, I'm not sure maybe to the degree of Michael, who was super young and right. able to stay up all night. And, yeah, yeah. And he, he's like, this is what's making people move. Right. You know? These are the kind of beats that are making people move. And I can only imagine that, that when George comes in and he hears Jerry's version, you know, George is probably out at, at the clubs, too, you know, right. doing, doing the London scene or whatever. And just in addition, like that hi-hat, like... Hey, this is going to, this makes you move a little bit, you know, out on the floor or in your seat or wherever you happen to be. So, uh, and I don't know if Jerry Wexler was out just, you know, <laughs> rocking the clubs yeah, at, at that point. Probably, probably yeah. not. Um, no, and I think it's fascinating too, just to be able to listen to the evolution of like the super rough work tape, the demo, the record, you know, it, it, it does sort of. 
you know, we are a culture that when we think about songs, we think about the recording of that song yeah. and that kind of freezes it in Amber, you know, yeah. and, and how important that can be of, you know, I, I think we've talked to people on this show who've, who've said like, man, I really felt like such a such song that I wrote, you know, should have had something happen with it, but it, it was the wrong decade or the wrong, right. the wrong producer, or the wrong album, or I got kind of buried in the wrong, you know, not presented in the right way. And you can see how easy, like if the only version we ever heard of careless whisper was the Jerry Wexler one and be like, yeah, that song's okay. Yeah. You know, but like we wouldn't go around, you know, humming that song. It wouldn't have been the hit that it was. Right. Um, so it, it, one of the things that we often ask people on the show is, well, we'll ask them like, where does songwriting end and production begin? Mm, right. And this is, I think one of those examples where it's like they're, they can be so intertwined that it's hard to, to tease out the two. Yeah. And I want to thank you for even having this conversation because I, I would venture a guess you haven't listened to the entirety of that song in, <laughs> in a good couple decades. Like, you know, this, this is, this is a bit of a me, it's a bit of a me topic. I mean, I've, I, I feel like that song is fairly ubiquitous. Uh, I'm taking the whole song. So. I'm not saying that you heard like a bit of it. <laughs> Walking in and out of a store. I but. mean, I, I won't say that I've pulled it up on Spotify right. or, you know, gone and searched it out, but I'm sure that I've heard it at the grocery store right. uh, plenty of times. But I, uh, let me say this to our listeners. You know, if, if you guys have come across any cool demos, you know, with, online of, of old songs, send the links our way because this is fun stuff for us to dig into. You know, when, when we did the interview... When we did the interview with Billy Steinberg and we got to hear those demos of uh, So Emotional yeah. and, and the hard songs that he did, that stuff is super fascinating and super fun. Oh, yeah. and, and there's tons of it out there online. So um, feel free to send them our way. Uh, we love checking this kind of stuff out. And um, if you send us something really cool we've never heard of, maybe we'll shout you out. And, or uh, maybe we won't. I don't know. We, we, we <laughs> it's, it's a carrot. Yeah. Uh, or send us the stems if you have them and we'll do a hot remix. Totally. And and if we do mention your name, it might not be loud. It might just be a careless whisper. <laughs> oh, boy. Yikes. Part two. Zach, welcome to Songcraft. Dude, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's it's great to speak with you. Um, I know that, that your band kind of began in New York, uh, and I know that you live in Nashville uh, now, and... Uh, Obviously, those are two kind of hotbeds of, of the music world. But what I don't know is where you spent most of your time growing up and what kind of musical influences you were absorbing as a kid. I'd love to hear about that. Oh, man, I, um, I grew up in a, a town called Ackworth, Georgia. Um, it's uh, back in the 90s. It's like, you know, it's like where the trailer parks were outside of the nice town. Huh. kind of thing right um and uh it was fun it was a fun place to grow up um i i grew up on like a like a little like we kind of had like horses but you could ride them um but it's not like they were working um it was more <laughs> pets <laughs> right right we were like sometimes i'm like i grew up on a farm and my sister one time was like, hey, you know, we didn't grow anything. I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I, um, that. I, I never looked at a horse and be like, hey, leave him alone. He's working. <laughs> yeah, but I grew up uh, I grew up in a funny situation. Um, I, I feel like a lot more people are like aware of it now. But um, like, I actually heard – you ever heard that comedian Nate Bergardsky? Oh, yeah. Um, he he talks about he was like my parents were like 
Christian parents in the nineties. So they were like the most Christian, the most Christian. parents of all time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and, um, yeah, so I wasn't allowed to listen to like music on the radio. Um, I, um, you know, it was like church music, but I remember like when I finally, you know, like eight years old, you know, grew up in the nineties, that, that was like when you were allowed to just like leave the house, be gone all day long. <laughs> And uh, maybe come back before dark. And there was a Turtles uh, music store where I could cut through some neighbors' backyards and like enter through the through the back, you know, the back nasty parking lot kind of thing on my BMX. And uh, my first record I ever bought was the Bodyguard soundtrack, and I stand by that. Amazing. <laughs> um, so that's that's Whitney Houston, right? Yeah, man. Right. I wish I was like, yeah, man, my first was like Graham Nash, um, <laughs> Pixies. But, it's, but it's not, it's not <laughs> right. Right. Um, and I grew up, uh, like towards like middle school, I started testing the waters with my family and I was like, Oh, I'm allowed to listen to like oldies. So I listened to a lot of just whatever the oldies radio station played. Um, so it was like CCR and Aretha Franklin and, you know, Otis Redding and all that. Um, and, and that was my thing. Um, yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't hip to, uh, the nineties rock. Um, you know, I knew that Nirvana existed and, and that they were like bad boys. (laughs) <laughs> right 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 but you, you you dipped your toe in the whitney houston pool first before getting into uh getting into the hardcore stuff. you know i i want to i want to <laughs> dive a little deeper even into the christian music segment of your upbringing because even that is not a sort of like monolithic thing i mean you you could be into uh you know like something like southern gospel like the spears or the blackwood brothers or you could be into like ccm pop at the time like you know you're Michael English or, I, or yeah, or, man. Yeah. I, I can say confidently I wasn't into any of it. <laughs> I was like, this is awful. <laughs> this is such a bummer. <laughs> um, so I was just like in the back of the car dealing with it, you know, Amazing. Um, <laughs> and, and that was my burden. That was my burden to carry. Yeah, um, the flesh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I uh, so I grew up listening to oldies a lot. Yeah, basically oldies, and then like Boys to Men, um, Mariah Carey, Whitney, um, you know, all that stuff. Water runs dry, like yeah, all man. that. Um, basically, Babyface. Ba- yeah, the Babyface essentials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um, well, I understand that that. You know, you, you talk to a lot of people about when they get into um, songwriting and, you know, when they kind of latch on to music as uh, a potential career path. You know, for, for artists of like our parents' generation, it's almost always, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. You know, you can almost kind of, yeah. you can kind of guess, you know. Um, and, you know, maybe for, for folks closer to our age, you know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it is grunge and Nirvana or, or maybe it's, you know, whatever, but, 
uh, I understand that you didn't really get into writing songs of your own until you were an adult, and it kind of was born out of uh, uh, an unfortunate accident. Uh, tell us a bit about that and how, how you kind of got into first writing and expressing yourself through lyrics and songs. Yeah, man. I mean, funny enough, Brian Elmquist that's in the band with me, he was the first guy that I met that like tried to write songs. Like people didn't do that in my hometown. Um, uh, so that was really fun. We met when we were like 18 and that was really eye opening to me. Um, but I was just around it. I just lived with him, but I didn't try to write until, yeah, my wife, my wife had this horse accident on, on my little horse non-farm that I grew up on and she, she, she broke her neck. She broke C1, C3, C5 and C6. Wow. And she was like diagnosed a quadriplegic and, um, we were sent around to a few different hospitals and it was insane. It was absolutely insane. It was like halo drilled into her skull, like nuts. Um, and we ended up at this place, this amazing hospital called the Shepherd Center. It's actually, it's where Christopher Reeves was. Um, oh, wow. But my friends would come and visit me at the little like hospital apartment that I was living at where I was like learning how to take care of her and learning like this new reality. And I was definitely uh, going through like a season of like, you could call it shock, you could call it grief. I, I could, I could, I could feel myself like pulling away from, like I was losing my, like my inner dialogue mm. and I was journaling a lot and my friends would come up and be like, Hey, how are you? Da, da, da. And I would just like read them my journals. Cause I didn't know how to answer that question. Right. And, and I had this one buddy, Caleb, I was like, man, you should learn how to play the guitar. And, um, just like there's an, there was an open mic across the street from the hospital on Thursday nights. And he was like, you should, you should just like focus on this while you're living here, learn how to play the guitar and sing at the same time and just go and sing these journal entries to strangers. And I was like, okay. So I did. And it became this like incredibly cathartic healing thing for me like like especially like taking in the kindness of strangers mm. and um i mean they <laughs> i look back on this and i feel so sorry for these people because they were like there to have a good time and here i was like weeping crying on stage like not even know why like um but i very quickly was comfortable with being like really vulnerable my songs didn't have any choruses it was like kind of a kind of a a shark storm and um and i fell in love with it and i was like man you guys if stacy miraculously heals and can ever walk again or even can ever move from the waist down again why don't we all move to new york city and i'm gonna try to i'm gonna try to make it like, you know, the old, like, American dream. Like, I'm going to move to New York City and 
I didn't want to move to Nashville because I, I felt like I was like already past the age where like success could happen, even though I was like, what, 23 years old. Oh, um, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Right. But like, I was like, all right, I want to move to a city that's going to be honest with me real fast. And if I'm going to give it a couple years, uh, which turned into like a decade. So, so Stacy healed, mm. which was wow. like amazing. None of the doctors understood how, like, that doesn't happen a lot in that world. And we moved to New York and uh, it was back when you would like burn a CD and I, I figured out that like the people that owned the bars were usually like bored and they're like cleaning up around like 3 p.m. So I would go to the bar before it opened, shake their hand, hand them my CD, be like, I want to play a show. And over a, a long period of time that started to work and i and i started i like one of my my home bases was a place called bar four that had a beautiful open mic community in brooklyn and then i would play my like shows at a at a place called rockwood music hall on allen street in manhattan and ken rockwood the own rockwood music hall kind of took me under his wing and uh yeah, like really, he he kind of developed me uh, and was just like, he would meet with me and be like, what are you trying to say in this song? You need to figure out your chorus. Like he just, he was just the the venue owner. Um, and he did this with a lot of people. Um, he actually had his own record label back in the day under Pete Gambart at Atlantic Records. Hmm. And he tried to sign me to that, and I met with his boss, Pete, and Pete was like, hey, man, I don't want to wait for the next tragedy to happen to you for you to write another like good song. Wow. And I was like, wow, that's, that's – I mean, I'm glad I forgot my capo because I don't even want to sing in your <laughs> office. Um, and I just stayed at it and just kind of pounded the pavement for, for several years and um, got like an, a great local following in New York City and um, and did that for a long time and built it up to where I could like sell out the Bowery Ballroom. Um, but I didn't ever play anywhere else. I only played in the city. Um, so then when we put the Lone Bellow together, we kind of tricked all the powers that be we we made our record you know without a label or anything and then we sat on it for two years and like i was like hey we're gonna we're gonna put a show together at the bowery it's gonna sell out we're gonna invite all the suits and they're gonna think that we can do this everywhere huh. we just let's just not talk about that let's just do this and it worked and we you know we back then you you needed a label to to properly release a record um and and we did and uh man we've we've had the honor of of doing that ever since hmm. wow you know i hear you you know sort of building this narrative around something that that seems so crucial to a young writer and that's finding the right 
um, community, you know, a community of artists that are doing the open mic thing that's kind of encouraging that you can learn from and push one another. Um, the owner at Rockwood and how he was able to kind of speak into your songs. Um, and then, you know, uh, seeing here that, that Charlie Peacock uh, produced you guys' debut album, which is interesting because he's somebody that Scott and I knew from back in the old days fr- as a Christian music artist in, in his younger days. Yeah. He's a guy with such, yeah. a, such an incredibly broad palette of music that that he's involved in. I mean, the guy's an incredible jazz piano player as well. He's been such a curator of of art and, and an encourager of people. And and just hearing how you you guys were able to really build um, what it seems like was a really powerful and helpful team and community in that time in your life. Yeah, man. He, he um, I still don't know how he found out about us. I I I can't remember clearly but i think how we met is he had just made a record for a band called the civil wars and they came up to play a show in new york and needed a place to stay and like through friends they ended up staying at our apartment in brooklyn and i i think that that's how i ended up meeting him and then you know, at that time, I just had my solo record and um, uh, a guy named Nate Yetten that um, used to manage the Civil Wars and was married to Joy Williams, I think, helped send that record to Charlie. And and then Charlie reached out and um, and I was like, well, I actually have this new project that I'm working on. And he had the idea of actually making the first record at Rockwood Music Hall. So mm-hmm. he brought a whole portable studio up. Him and Richie Biggs brought a whole portal. Like, and Ken Rockwood gave us the whole venue for like three days and three nights, which is, that's losing a lot of money. Sure. Like yeah. Rockwood a has, spot. has three venues and there's like six shows a night in each venue. Wow. And he shut down all three venues and gave us, gave us the, the room. And, um, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think probably one of the best known songs off that first record is green eyes and a heart of gold. Green eyes and a heart of gold. All money's gone in the house is cold. And it's all, it's all, it's all. got that line in it we're broke in new york city which i guess is probably pretty uh autobiographical at that point as you're trying <laughs> yeah. to get things get things off the ground uh talk a bit about that song uh specifically and, and, and a bit about writing that one yeah i mean i um so i originally wrote that song as like this like sad depressing song i think it was like six eight and i remember <laughs> i was good friends with my buddy eric marshall and I played it for him in my apartment and, and he was like, dude, can you, 
can you just try not to write like a big sad ballad? Can can you just put it to a four four beat and see how it feels? <laughs> and and I did, and he was like, "That's it, do that." And I was like, "Okay." And um, yeah, that's kind of how wow. that happened. It's so funny. Like that song was never a single or anything, um, but it's been. It was our closer at shows for ever. Um, I mean, it's still like a strong contender. We don't we don't close with it anymore because because um, we got some some songs we're proud of off the new record. Right. But yeah, it's like it's definitely one of the fundamental songs of the Lone Bellow career. Right. Well, it's interesting you say that you know that wasn't. I think "Bleeding Out" was the single from that first record, and and it yeah. was a. It was a top 20 uh, single on Billboard's AAA chart, but, you know, Green Eyes and a Heart of Gold and You Never Need Nobody, those songs are, like, more popular, I think, than than the single, um, which kind of, I don't know that there's necessarily a question here, but it just sort of speaks to the the thing that, you know, maybe a small handful of people have any input on what the single's going to be, but, like, the audience decides... Mm-hmm what they're going to resonate with the most and what they're really going to latch onto. And I think that's one of the biggest changes in music in the last 20, 30 years is the idea that it used to be the single might be the only encounter that you would have with an artist or a band. Mm -hmm. And now uh, something that the label might've thought like, nah, this is the one. And then the public has immediate access to every song on the record. They don't have to go, they don't have to go to turtles to, to buy the record or, you know, they, they can yeah. just stream whatever. And then stuff like that just gets its own legs and, and it, and people gravitate toward um, what they want to. Does that phenomenon ever surprise you in terms of, of maybe a song you wrote where you thought, man, this is, this is going to be the one. And then it's a, a different one that you kind of go, Oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, I mean, what's funny with like you, those two songs that you mentioned, "You Never Need Nobody" and "Green Eyes and a Heart of Gold," I was like, "Those are the ones," and the label was like, "Nah, Bleeding Out's the one," hmm. and I was like, "I think that you think Bleeding Out's the one just because we say the words Bapada, but you need to remember <laughs> the only reason why Bapada was there is because we couldn't afford a little horn section, so we just sang it instead of." And they're like, "Well, that's it," and I was like, "You're wrong, but whatever." Um, and then, like you know, as as time goes on, yeah, the audience is like, no, that those other ones, those those were it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, when we were putting out the first record, I remember right before we put it out, my friend Chris Pereira was like, "Hey, man, I got access to this like European. Uh, it's it's not legal in America yet, but uh, I my friend gave me actually." access to it in Europe. And he's like, it's called Spotify. Huh. And he was like, I think it might ruin your life. Oh, geez. And I was like, dude, don't say stuff like that. <laughs> and lo and behold, it, uh, it changed everything very quickly. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, the, where the place that we found ourselves in now is like, yes, people don't buy records anymore. But you also have like a more human connection with the actual with the actual listeners, yeah. um, and I'm grateful for that. You know, I I want to talk a bit about the next album. Then came the morning. You know, that's um, 
that's an album that earned you a Americana Music Association nomination for Duo Group of the Year. You know, we hear some steel guitars and some country vibes in there. I'm assuming you guys were still living in New York at the time. And sometimes we talk about uh, a sense of place and how that can affect the way an album is made. But it sounds to me like what I'm hearing in that album is more about your roots and where you came from than where you were living at mm-hmm. the time. Uh, I'm curious to hear about how your the different environments you've been in, how they how they've affected your music, and how it seems like George has always sort of stayed there with you. Yeah, I think that like you know like core memories have always been a big part of my songwriting, so that would definitely be Georgia. Um, but I remember you know we made the first record and then. Um, this guy named Aaron Desner that like lived right down the street from us in Ditmas, Brooklyn reached out and was like, hey, I want to produce your second record. And, um, I mean, I was floored. I mean, I didn't tell him, but I was like a huge national fan. Yeah. And, um, and he had the idea of making the record up at dreamland studios just outside of Woodstock, New York, which is this like beautiful, dilapidated old church turned into a studio uh, like back in the seventies. And um, that's, that's where we, that's where we made that record. Um, And it was, I mean, it was really fun experimenting with those other instruments with a producer that was also not from the South. And, you know, so no one in the studio was like trying to replicate bluegrass or or anything we everyone was just like trying to figure out how to express the emotion behind the the lyric and melody yeah yeah i listened to a song uh, like fake roses that was on that record mm-hmm. and you know it it's kind of a, a character study of a lonely woman which reminds me of something like lucinda williams would write you know it's more of a mm-hmm. of a story kind of snapshot you know it's it's a vivid uh, type of lyric and and I see that as a, a little bit of a different kind of song um, mm-hmm. in a way than than maybe some of the stuff on the first record fake roses on the mantle Elvis postcards on the fridge Ed lays softly by Baby sleeping in the crib Oh, broken taped up tail light A mama's money collar She don't open all the gas bill Just leaves it on the dashboard It's a low and lonesome sound When the wind sweeps through the pond She just heard People always say they, you know, they've got their whole life to write the first record and, and you didn't really start writing until you were an adult, but you had this traumatic experience and you had this sort of wild moment that ignited this songwriting spark within you and, and then that progresses and, and you know, you've, you've got you're writing a, a first record before you even realize necessarily that you're writing a record. You're just writing songs and then you get in a band and then you figure out which songs work well. And then you start making a record and what songs fit here. 
But by the second record, you're like, all right, I know I'm in a band. I know I need more songs. I know we're making another record. Mm -hmm. Um, In in Mm -hmm. what ways does that kind of imposed structure uh, influence your actual writing process? Well, Fake Roses was definitely one of the first songs that I ever wrote that was from someone else's point of view. Everything else before that was like very personal and 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 uh, like my personal kind of story or how I saw the world. Fig Roses was a song that I wrote about my mother-in-law. Um, who was like, yeah, she was like a single mom in the 80s, uh, uh, like night shift nurse, um, just like stall to the earth, like quiet, just beautiful soul. Um, and she told me this she like it took her several years to like open up but um she told me the story that that happened like back in the late 80s where her and her sister were like both in these like violent relationships um and they needed to both get out um because they were like they were like afraid for their lives kind of thing wow and and they they talked each other into it, and um, so that's why that's why the lyric is like, um, "Your heart is breaking. I hear what it's saying, and you don't have to tell me anything because it's it's too like quiet kind of human beings that just like understand each other at a core level, um, and that was." that was such an honor to, to be able to record that song and to be able to shine a little light, especially on like, just like that, that type of American, that type of human being where it's like, no one's going to hear that story Mm. unless you're like in the family, literally. Um, So that fake roses definitely opened my mind up to like, Oh, this could be something that that's exciting to me. And when you guys start to get, you know, you're you're building your audience, you're starting to get nominated for awards and things like that. Um, you're you're beginning to share your music with listeners, with a label, with producers. You know, it 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 leaves just being this sort of personal sense of expression and becomes something that's it's just very very shared um was that ever difficult mm-hmm. or was it all you know was it fun to start to see hey this is opening up more and more people are getting involved and more people are speaking into the process um did you ever feel threatened by what success was bringing your way you know uh, there's this wilco song that like really helped me with with that and um tweety it's like if you feel like singing a song and you want others to sing along just sing what you feel and the rest of the line, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's like, it's not your song anymore. Basically is what he's saying. Like you are. And that was really helpful to me because I think that I was like being hit with this, like, okay, the songwriting was a love okay, now it's like how I take care of my family. Yeah. And there is this like, this pressure, especially, you know, the sophomore record, that's when it really hits. 
Um, and being able to like push past that. And it took a long time. I mean, I would even venture to say like, personally, it took me like two records to push past that. So then came the morning and walk into a storm. I was still, I was still like wrestling with that fear um, a lot. And then by the time we went back to Aaron Desner and made half moonlight, I was over that. And I just like kind of saw myself as like a spoke in the wheel. And um, that was, that was a very freeing reality. As you just referenced, you, you guys did a record with Aaron Desner. Then you did the walk into a storm record, which you mentioned that I think Dave Cobb produced that. Uh, but then you came mm-hmm. back to, to Aaron. So there's, there's sort of this, uh, um, you know, you got Aaron, different producer, back to Aaron, which is kind of an interesting uh, trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what particularly interests me about Walk Into a Storm is I feel like I probably hear maybe even fewer overt country elements on that record than mm-hmm. I than I heard on the previous records. And, you know, that was, oh, yeah. you know, cut in, in Nashville with Dave Cobb, who's probably best known for you know, working with Chris Stapleton and, and of course he's, you know, Brandy Carlisle and a gajillion of guys like, you know, unbelievably prolific as a producer. Um, but you know, a song like, uh, time's always leaving. I, I listened to that song and I'm like, you know, those drums to me sound like Tom Petty or Bruce Springsteen. Like those, it doesn't sound, I wouldn't go like, Oh, this is a Nashville record in the kind of stereotypical, uh, sense. Time's always leaving. Never takes up a coat. Back in her bags, never leaving a note. Seems I'm always believing she'll stay for the night. The time's always leaving before I can tell her to stay, stay. I'm not through with her yet. I'm afraid of the morning, morning, and I'm afraid of sunset. Time's always leaving, sneaking peeks at her wall. So uh, I'm I'm curious as a departure from from working with Aaron and then later coming back to Aaron, like how do you view that that record uh, from the vantage point of today? You know, the experience was like was an incredible honor. Like working with Dave Cobb, recording the record at RCA. I mean, we had just moved to Nashville. I think I was going through a little bit of a, not like identity crisis, but I was just like, kind of like, what's this life for? Um, (laughs) (laughs) And um, I, I, I love like getting to know Dave, like as a friend. Right. And, and I, and like watching how fast he moves and how confident he is and what he wants was really inspiring. Um, and and there was nothing that I would change about the record that we made with, with Cobb. Um, Aaron just has um, values that were a little closer to home for me and Brian and Kaneen. Like, right. Aaron, Aaron will sit and listen to some idea or something forever mm. until it's like completely fleshed out. Right. And, and Dave was like, I want to capture the moment. I want to capture the excitement. So it was like two separate uh, 
ways of doing things. Yeah. Um, so, and I mean, I, you know, there was like some personal stuff going on with our band when we were with Dave, like the first day that we were set to start recording with Dave, like Brian was in rehab. Wow. So like that, that recording time at RCA in in between like a Stapleton record, like I think like an Isbell record and something else. It was like, we only have this and this is happening. So you can't record right now. And I was like, I'm sorry. And like Dave was so kind and so understanding. And that mm -hmm. was like, I think that was one of my favorite things that I took away from that was like, he was just like such a human yeah. with all that. And he was like, let, like, let's, let's, I don't, he was like, I don't know Brian, but I want Brian to be healthy. I want him to be safe. And we're, we're in this together. And that was really beautiful. But I think that ultimately when we went back with Aaron, um, just, we had stayed in touch with him and, um, he built that new studio out in the middle of nowhere. And, um, and he was just like, he was working like a, with a few people that like Josh Kaufman that like, I really wanted to work with. Um, and, um, I think, I think one thing that the Lone Bellow has always had, like in the foundation of who we are in, and it's for good and it's for really bad, but like, we've never had that thing where we're like, okay, this is our lane and we're going to stay in that lane sonically. Right. Um, we've always just like pushed the boundaries and up, upset the labels and, and this and that. Um, and I think that like, especially with the Cobb record, everything was about like, all right, you guys sing your big, high, loud harmonies. And like, you know, you talk about times always leaving. It's like, ah! like huge <laughs> screaming sounds and went back to Aaron and Aaron was like, I'm going to take that tool away from you and see what happens. So we made this record that was like, kind of like a nighttime drive record. And, um, and I think at that point in time, that was the, that was the thing that we needed to do to kind of shake things up inside of us and not just like answer to this ambiguous call of like, no, here's, here's the, here's the sound that you occupy. Right. Do your in thing. American rate in American music. So, you know, looking at that half moon light album uh, that you guys did with Aaron, you know, the song count on me has, has become mm -hmm. uh, a, uh, just a, a big song, a big touch point in, in you guys' career and in your catalog. Um, and it's also a song that, that when I'm listening to it, it characterizes something that I hear in your writing that I wanted to talk to you about a bit. You know, a lot of modern writing you hear is very, um, it's very linear. It's very symmetrical. This is our verse melody, and the second verse needs to sound just like the first verse. How many syllables? Let's count mm -hmm. them out. Um, I don't hear that, you know, I, I hear a lot of intuition uh, in your writing. I hear a lot of uh, spontaneity, you know, when you go from moment to moment. Uh, and I, I particularly listen to this, this, there's a moment in the second verse of Count On Me when you say that line, nothing else to lose. 
and and the harmonies mm-hmm. join in on that moment. And, and I hear it, it's it's this great marriage of spontaneity and construction because you do what sounds like just a moment on the mic where you're like I'm I'm going up here I'm feeling this build I'm I'm lifting this melody here, and then it, hearing that back saying okay this is where the harmonies should join and this is how we're going to accent this moment and accent this emotion. When it shakes you, when no one else will say it, and you need to hear the truth, let it break you, let it help you lay down with your head. Scared to fail Clock's gotten down I think I got everything Been a friend of trouble After losing it all I got nothing else to lose Let it break you Let it help you lay down um, I'd love to hear how Just in sort of the, the process of writing and production and arrangement, how those things come together for you and how much you see when you're writing the song at the beginning and how much happens spontaneously in the moment. Oh yes, that melody. Go go there. Follow that. You know, let's 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 jump on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, with Count on Me, like we knew we wanted one more song for for Half Moonlight. And we were trying to figure it out. And um and at the time I was hanging out with um, Mike Anderson, Anderson East and um, Aaron Rattier a lot. And um, Mike and I were like working on, on some, something for like a, for like a could be TV show. And they, they wanted a song and this and that. And, and I remember I sent him a voice memo that was like seven minutes long. And um, it was like, it was a lot of the lyrics of the chorus of count on me. And then it was a lot of just like vamping and, you know, like one of those middle of the night recordings kind of thing. Yeah. And he was like, Hey, there's nothing here until five minutes and 35 seconds. (laughs) You, you say this. And that's where I think that's where I think that you should lean in. And that was like, um, that was the, uh, that's what became the first hook of the song where it's like, uh, let it break, let it help you lay down what you held on to. And I mean, and I, the funny thing is, is I'd written those lyrics while we were make while we were waiting to make the Dave Cobb record and Brian was in rehab. It was like, let it break you, let it help you lay down what you held on to. You, you can count on me. If I can count on you, I would. I I wrote that to Brian, to my bandmate. Mm. A, you know, a couple years before. Wow. And then, and I had other verses for it that were just like, just didn't really make any sense. I, you know how it is. Like you have a, you have verses, and you're like, yeah, those aren't good enough. Right. Um. So that that's why that song didn't make, uh, Walking to a Storm, because huh. the verses just weren't there. And going, I think healing and, and going back and reliving it all. Um, that's where that song like finally came to life. 
and um and it was and it was great and i was actually worried that the song was too simple mm-hmm. and um and aaron was like hey when you listen to matt just listen to any song we've ever recorded and listen to how many times we'll repeat lines yeah. and it is so many if you pay attention like matt Berenger, he like he repeats one line like 30 times sometimes in one song um so that was the that was like a that song was was a was a nice little like left hand turn for us where it was like hey there's just a there's just a few words in the verses and everything else is going to lean on this like repetitive um thing um and it's become a beautiful thing i mean we had the honor four days ago we had the honor of singing count on me to the first responders that like went into the danger and at the covenant school shooting and like the four police officers are right there and we're singing count on me to them and i'm just like wow this is what tweety was talking about Mm. this song is now means something else and is something else and i love that part of just songwriting yeah right yeah wow that's powerful um, well, I want to talk about the most recent record, Love Songs for Losers, which is your fifth studio album as a band and, uh, the first that you guys produced yourselves. And yeah, as we think about production, I had mentioned that on, on times always leaving that the drums, you know, reminded me of like a, a Tom Petty or Bruce Springsteen record. And, and I listened to a song like count on me. And that's an example to me of how you guys use drums to kind of drive a song, but you leave mm-hmm. this space instrumentally um, in kind of an interesting way. And then I listened to a song like Honey uh, from the latest mm-hmm. record and, you know, the the drums there kind of have this retro 80s throwback kind of vibe, which is cool. Walking out in the middle of the street now in the middle of the night Where we used to go When we didn't know better Honey I'll never call you honey Unless I'm feeling lonely Or I'm just being lazy Baby But I bring all this up because I believe the Lone Bellow is, is officially like a trio. Uh, so <laughs> you don't have a, a drummer uh, who's been there the, the whole time as part of the band, so to speak. Yet you guys use drums in different and interesting ways. And, and I feel like you use drums, you know, as a songwriter, that, that the drums are part of the construction mm. and, and part of the um, they, they feel intentional. Um, and as you said, you guys don't try to stay in one lane. And I think honey is, is a great example of that. I'd love to hear a a bit about how that song came together in general, but also just kind of your thoughts on, on how you do think about drums and percussion, uh, as a band that doesn't really have an official drummer as a, as a member of the band, so to speak. Yeah. Well, the love songs for losers, um, we we finally used like our actual live band to 
to record the record. And that was, that was really, Brian was the first one that was like, Hey, I think that we can do this ourselves this time. I want to use Julian Dorio as the drummer. We're, we're, you know, we're not gonna, this is, he's our guy. He's been our guy for over six years now. We love him. He's an amazing person. And, um, you know, we're going to use Jason Pipkin on bass. And, um, and I think one of the reasons why I loved making the record the way we did was like the camaraderie in the studio. Mm. Like we've been touring together in a bus for years and all of that, just like shorthand communication and just fun and really just happiness and joy just kind of all came out right. in the studio. And Brian like definitely like produced this record. He was the one like really steering the ship. And Jacob Suter was this friend of his that he was like, I really love this guy's work. I know you've never heard of him before, but he's an incredible piano player and he's He's a great producer and engineer and he liked to spend a lot of time with vocals. And we had never, other than Peacock, we had never really had that before. Um, which is hilarious because like we're such a singing band. Um, so, but I think going back to your question about Honey, you know, Honey when, so I had a version of Honey that was just like, it was back when I only wrote on acoustic guitar. So it was like very just like driving, strummy, like very straightforward. Um, but, but it didn't have the same chorus. And we got together and we wrote a chorus. And I think we all just like quietly knew like, hey, this isn't the chorus for the song. Hmm. Put it away. And then during the pandemic, I like I bought a piano and I learned how to play like a couple chords, just like enough to be able to like right in a different way and um i was listening to a lot of big red machine uh a lot of bon iver and um uh, uh that new melody just like popped out from the piano of like uh walking out in the middle of the street now and then brian and jacob really had the idea of like hey we're gonna like minor this bad boy and we're going to put it on this like pulse. And, um, and I think like my, my weird, I, I write most of my songs in six, eight. And then Brian's always like, can we please not do it in six? Eight? And then we change. <laughs> um, so I feel like honey is, um, is a beautiful representation of like Canine's strengths, Brian's strengths and my strengths of like, where like I'm I'm kind of lyric and and melody. Kenine was very much like, here's exactly how I want you to sing these words. Here's how I want you to breathe. Here's how we're gonna connect with you at this moment. There's like a part in the bridge where it's like a it's a, I got the headlights off and the radio on. Every window is down. It comes out song da 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 da, and then it goes. Let the darkness come. And I was just like riffing, just like feeling my feelings. Yeah. And Kenny was like, oh no, we're we're all gonna go there with you and we're gonna do this weird thing again. So like 
Honey really represents the band, I think, in a way that we've never been able to represent ourselves before. Wow. Um, and 10 years in, being able to say that is just like, yeah. It's it's a it's a beautiful thing, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, circling all the way back to to the beginning, talking about your parents were '90s Christians, uh, which is the most Christian, which is that great Nate Bargatze yeah. line. Uh, but you know, we're all products of our environment, right? And I don't know mm-hmm. what kind of. Uh, there's obviously a lot of different kinds of churches, from very formal to very relaxed. But you know, there's almost something in what you're saying about that spontaneity and then bringing people along. There's almost a connection to music that you might find in, in churches in terms of it's planned, but it also is flexible and it's spontaneous. And I'm wondering if that is something that you kind of soaked up as a kid, maybe without almost even realizing it, that the, the flexibility of music and the responsiveness of music to function, um, and to be elastic in a moment, depending on sort of what the emotion of that moment is. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. No, I, I absolutely, I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough to like grow up in like a, a really kind uh just like in a community that like genuinely cared for the marginalized uh in in our neighborhood and in our community and i and i saw that and and um when you are are with these folks that like genuinely do whatever they can to help other people and then you're in a sanctuary with them and you're you know, 10 years old and you, and you feel this release in a sanctuary musically. It's like, it's like you're suddenly taken, you're taken to another planet for a little while, Mm. you know, and then the service ends and then everybody goes home and makes small talk and your mother talks in the, you know, in the entrance of the church for way too long and you wait in the hot car and everybody gets mad and go to lunch. But there is that one moment that, that was like where no matter how many it was or who we all just kind of became this one thing for a second. Hmm. And, um, I love trying to experience that moment in live shows as much as I can. Yeah. And, and it brings me back to that like kindness of strangers thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's what makes live music so healing. Um, and, and, um, and that's why I'm not worried about AI. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, as I, I think, I mean, I, it's, I think it's always just been a part of the, the human story. Like this, like, we like to be together and make noise. Mm. Um, like when you play Red Rocks and you go downstairs and you see every single live show that's happened since like the 1800s and like the first many, many decades that people met there to sing. Remember, this is like way before sound systems or anything. It was like Easter Sunday, 1886, Easter Sunday, 1887. Easter, like, wow it's just like such a reminder that like this 
this desire to to sing together and to just get lost in something is a part of us and and it's like a good stop sign that we need to just like pause Mm. and be together uh, with strangers Mm. yeah you guys recorded this love songs for losers album at uh roy orbison's former home uh, in nashville yeah and if i was going to record at roy's former home i would do that with the hope and expectation that the ghost of roy would show up as an unexpected collaborator at some point <laughs> and that you would feel the spirit and the history of that of that place somehow kind of affecting the the creative process was, was there ever a moment where you were like oh man i i feel the 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 weight and the history of this place kind of sp- even speaking into the way we're making this record man absolutely especially when you take into consideration like so it's Orbison's pool house. That's where we made the record mm. right next door to that was like a two acre lot. Um, that was where his other house was that burned down. Like, um, I think in the 1960s and like, that's where his two, two of his children died in that fire. Ugh. And then just past that, the next plot of land, was um johnny and june you know johnny cash's house um that also burned down at some point and you know and johnny had this orchard made um on that property between roy's house and his house to like commemorate um you know his his children that that died in that fire um and the same guy that built there's there's one guy named Braxton Dixon that built all that built all these houses, and across the street was the house that Johnny Cash died in, and um, and when Cash was trying to get Dylan to to move down to Nashville, he wanted Braxton Dixon to build that house as well, and these and these structures are built out of basically this this builder would go on a road trip around America and put these houses together with like pieces of old barns or whatever that he found. And it would take him like six, seven, eight years to build a house. Um, so like being in that and, and, and knowing that history and, you know, we went, me and a, a friend of mine named Matt Marr went um, and met with his widow, with Braxton Dixon's widow. And she like told us all these insane stories um of that like old crew of like country music in nashville in the 1970s and having all of that and literally sitting in the in the middle of it um was just a real beautiful honor yeah wow amazing do you think that if you had made the record in kid rock's house that it would be different I think so. I think maybe so. I think there'd be two or three more bidets from what I've heard. I'm just thinking about Roy Orbison having a pool house, which made me imagine Roy Orbison in a pool, which is a funny image. Yeah, right. I can't imagine how much sunscreen that guy needed. Well, it was the 
pool was inside the house. I'll tell you that. <laughs> wow. There you go. Amazing. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you figure that one out. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Roy cannot be exposed to the sun for one second. No. The pool in the house. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Um, well, Zach, we want to, uh, Thank you for talking with us today. The, the latest record is Love Songs for Losers, and um, you guys have definitely embraced some some new sonic elements and, you know, e- even a song like Gold, I hear a little bit of, like, the outfield and some cool, like, 80s stuff in there, and we talked about Honey and, and the interesting drum sounds, and so we want to encourage our listeners, uh, even if you know the lone bellows other stuff definitely check out this record it's a it's a cool um new path and uh thank you for for just spending some time with us today and talking a little bit about about your writing process and uh your music it's been great all right thanks guys thanks for listening to make sure you don't miss an episode of songcraft please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 